0: Good morning. The next book collector podcast is the memoir of the famous New York bookseller Emil Offenbacher, who lived between 1909 and 1990. The introduction, by Florence, his daughter, and Claude, his son, is read here by Ginny Ferguson. The memoir itself is read by James Fleming.
1: Emil Offenbacher. A Memoir. Introduction by Florence Offenbacher Keller. Claude Offenbacher. Our father, Emil Offenbacher, was to his core a bookman. He was an extraordinary man, not simply because of his vast intellectual acumen, but because of the special manner in which he ordered his knowledge. He had a wonderful way of understanding the world, of using his learning and experience like a prism through which the human comedy might be uniquely understood. It is this perspective that could never be catalogued nor captured. He was also a great raconteur. Our dinner table was made festive by his anecdotes, some of which are included in this memoir which he would draw from his extensive readings as well as from his life stories that were punctuated frequently with his high-pitched infectious laughter there was nothing in life that emile could not imbue with humanity and humour even his stories of nazi germany were recounted without malice and without rancour rather They were stories about human beings doing human things in a world gone mad. Even his dreams were extraordinary. He had many of them. Our favorite was the one in which he had died. Upon his death, and much to his surprise, he found himself in heaven, standing before God. God looked at Emil, whose active practice of Judaism had not survived the war, and asked him, Emile, why did you forsake me? Emile stood aghast, ultimately responding with a stutter. But God, I just couldn't envision that a being of such greatness and grandeur could be more than a myth. God looked on Emile and replied matter-of-factly, Emile, you have no imagination. So ended the dream. But now our curiosity was piqued. So, what does God look like? Oh, he shrugged, your God variety, Michelangelo. This memoir covers our father's life from youth through his exodus from Europe. The forty years thereafter, as he put it, were not eventful enough to be recorded. While we might dispute this, we feel fortunate to have this document, which Emile pecked out on his old Remington typewriter in our summer place in Vermont, where he died, three years later, in 1990 at the age of 81. He dedicated this memoir to his four grandchildren, Tobias and Anthony Keller, and Andrew and Matthew Offenbacher.
0: My Bookish Youth Emil Offenbacher, Part 1, 1909-1940 I write this in our house in Vermont. The other night we were sitting around this table, Anne, Claude, Hannah, Florence, and three of our grandsons. I looked up at the window to the dark trees at the end of our meadow and the green mountains behind them, and I told myself, this is the end of a long line. How much do those around this table know about the beginning of this line and its progress up to this point? How much do they care to know? I believe that sooner or later they will want to know, and I will try to give them some of the essentials. I hesitated for a long time to write down anything about my life. Anne and I have almost made it a religion to avoid anything which would emphasise our personal importance. Can anybody who considers his life unimportant write about it? True, there were extraordinary events in my lifetime which have changed its course to a considerable extent, but these were world events about which a great deal has already been written and mostly with much more talent than is given to me. And I wonder, would there have been anything at all to relate if I had been allowed to continue my life the way it was during its first twenty years? I will begin with the crucial point of my story. I was born a German and a Jew. I grew up as a fervent German and a fervent Jew. I believe this will sound more or less unintelligible to future generations, since it has already become a purely historical fact in my own lifetime. But during a comparatively short time in history, for about a 100 years, it seemed an immovable way of life to a whole group of people from whom I descended. The families into which I was born had lived in Germany for many centuries. Up to the beginning of the 19th century, their lives were homogeneous. They were first and foremost Jews who had adjusted to living in Germany as a separate minority. The emancipation of the Jews at the beginning of the 19th century led the German Jews in two different directions, complete assimilation or a synthesis of Judaism and Germanism. I am a product of the latter. The school I went to, the elementary and junior high school of the Orthodox Jewish congregations at Frankfurt, was a rather unique institution. It served three generations, of which I belonged to the last. Its aims were to imbue its students simultaneously with German and Jewish culture, and it seemed at the time that it reached these aims. In retrospect, however, I believe it must be considered a failure. That it did not succeed in forming full German nationals was not its fault. That it failed to form full-blooded Jews was a definite weakness. Its fundamentalist view excluded any other aspects of Judaism, to the right as well as to the left, so that its students were unprepared for the revolutionary developments within their ethnic and religious body, of which the forebodings were already easily visible at the time of my youth. That questions of ethnicity and nationality should play such a crucial part in my life is, in a way, ironical. I was nine years old when World War I ended, and Germany turned from an empire into a republic. While the years of my childhood were lived against a highly patriotic background, my formative years stood under the sign of the revolution, primarily the Russian Revolution, which seemed to announce an era of liberalism. Like many of my contemporaries, I adopted the idea of liberalism, which became our guiding light from which we were unable to free ourselves, even when we became aware of its shortcomings. We stubbornly clung to it while the world went in the other direction. But for a short while, we were sustained in our beliefs. I remember the enthusiasm with which I attended one of the earliest performances of Brecht's Thrapané Opera when I lived in Berlin in 1928. I was 19 years old at the time, and I said to myself, this is an announcement of things to come, like Beaumaché's Figaro, which announced the French Revolution. Alas the things to come were quite different. I believe that everybody who gives some thought to the formation of his character looks back to one person in his early life, mostly a parent or a teacher. In my case, this role was taken by my mother's only brother. His name was Siegfried Schwarzschild, and we called him Uncle Fritz. Although on the outside his way of life was undistinguishable from that of my parents. No greater contrast in their personalities could be imagined. My parents were both extroverts. My father, intelligent, even brilliant, and rather vain, had a great curiosity for everything around him, and an enormous talent to accommodate it. My mother's outstanding feature was her resoluteness. Accepting life as it came, she was a tower of strength to her husband and children, in strict contrast to this, Uncle Fritz was the retiring and studious type. At the same time, his personal relationships were more genuine than my father's. I believe he could have been an ideal school teacher, a profession which was considered inferior and therefore unacceptable to the society in which he grew up. There were then only two accepted careers for the class to which he belonged, business and the professions. The one offering profit, the other status. Uncle Fritz, by studying the law, obtained his doctorate, which was the sign of nobility among the German Jewish bourgeoisie. In this connection I remember a fact, told to me by my mother, which always struck me as ludicrous. At the time my mother and my uncle got married, the diary was still a sacred institution, Every young couple received a considerable amount of money from the bride's parents, the interest from which was intended to supplement their income. The amount of these diaries was more or less fixed. In the case of my mother, who married a commoner, the sum was 100,000 marks. My uncle, in view of his doctorate, received twice that amount, his wife now being entitled to call herself Frau Doktor, all her life. Uncle Fritz had a quiet sense of humour. As an adolescent, I accompanied him and his family, his wife, Aunt Bertha, a lovely woman, and their son, Emil, my almost contemporary and my closest friend, to Bard Wildungen, a German spa. This was in the midst of the German inflation when the value of one mark was inflated up to a million. Leaving the restaurant one night after dinner, I heard Uncle Fritz say to Aunt Bertha, You know, I spent your whole diary tonight. I cannot imagine that Uncle Fritz was a very good lawyer. His career was interrupted by World War I, in which he served from beginning to end, in spite of a noticeable hearing defect, while my father, like many of his friends, managed to avoid military service. Uncle Fritz spent the war as a telegrapher on the front. His warriors, of which he often spoke to us children, were one of the two momentous events in his life. The other one was the Zionist movement, to whose earliest adherents in Germany he had belonged since the student days. How daring this attitude was, is difficult to understand for anyone born after the foundation of the State of Israel, Zionism in those days, indeed until the advent of Hitler, Was an absolute taboo among the Orthodox German Jews to whom my family belonged. To be, like Uncle Fritz, a Zionist and at the same time an Orthodox Jew was something almost unheard of. The way I was brought up, Judaism was strictly a form of religious observance and excluded any solidarity with Jews who did not share this observance. In contrast to this, Uncle Fritz took as his motto a variation of the Roman author, I am a Jew, nothing which is Jewish is alien to me. It was at his house that I made the acquaintance of an Ethiopian Jew. Up to that time, the early 1920s, very little was known about this group, the so-called Falashas, who had lived in Ethiopia for centuries strictly observing the Jewish laws. They had been, quote, discovered, by a European, a Dr. Feitlovich, who was a friend of my uncle. Dr. Feitlovich brought some of these young Falashers to Germany, where he placed them in Orthodox Jewish families and where they were educated. I still see this slim black youth playing ball in the garden with my cousin. He was not only the first black Jew, but also the first black person I ever met. Only this year, 1985, the existence of the Falashas became known to a wider public through their emigration to Israel, which was reported at length by the press. During the winter months, Uncle Fritz took us on Friday evenings on a weekly tour of the Frankfurt synagogues of different denominations in which most of the Orthodox Jews would not even set foot. However, he never tried to convert me to Zionism, He must have felt that this would have led to a conflict with everything around which my life at home and at school centered. And he was not a revolution. Instead, he introduced me to music. He was an accomplished pianist, and to great literature. He liked to read to us from the works of the great German poets, of which Heine was his favorite, as well as from the lesser-known classics, which we never heard of in school. Reading... Already at that early stage in my life was my greatest enjoyment, and this brought me closest to my uncle. When Uncle Fritz changed his profession after the war to one of an antiquarian bookseller, it determined my future. I was only twelve years old when I wrote a short essay in answer to a survey made at our school concerning our plans for the future, in which I declared that I wanted to become an antiquarian bookseller with the exception of two short stages, one at the beginning and one in the middle of my career, I have done nothing else. I never went to high school. When I was 16, my father placed me in a small banking firm in Frankfurt. His opinion was that training as a banker was the best basis for any non academic career. I worked in the bank for three years. Looking back at that time, I am surprised at the enthusiasm I brought to my work, which during its later part included some lively participation in the stock market. I am sorry to say, though, that I did not derive any profit from that training. My interest in banking and the stock market did not last, and today I am more removed from it than ever. That this should be so must have to do with my attitude toward money. Earning much money needs a strong drive and the courage to take risks. I completely lack that drive and that courage. Money was foremost in my mind as long as I did not have any. As soon as I had enough to live on, it lost its interest for me. In retrospect, it seems to me that the only profit I derived from my banking period was that I acquired a friend, probably the most interesting I ever had. His name was Rudolf Aron. Some years later, when we met in Paris again, he became very close to me and Anne and was one of the witnesses at our wedding. At that time, he gained a certain reputation as the editor of the section of economics at Das Neue Tagebuch, a much-read German refugee publication. When the war came, he left for the United States, where we met him again. For reasons unknown to me, he never pursued the career to which his brilliant gifts entitled him. During my years in the bank, I never forgot my earlier aim, the antiquarian book business. In those days, the antiquarian book dealer often was also an art dealer, particularly in the field of drawings and the graphic arts. In 1928, it was decided that I should leave my parents' house and my father found for me, through one of our relatives, an unpaid position, in one of the prominent Berlin art galleries and auction houses. The owner, Paul Grauper, was a remarkable man. He had a fine head with beautiful eyes, but his body was small and crippled, and he walked with a cane. He was a self-made man, who had started out as a small antiquarian book dealer. By the time I came to him, his business was located in a palace in one of the most elegant quarters of Berlin. There was a lot of snobbishness in the atmosphere. The head of the antiquarian book department was a young man, as ugly as he was intelligent, by the name of Ernst Jutrosinsky. It was Jutro to whom I owe my introduction to the basics of the trade. At that time he was at the top of the world. He had an enviable job and a beautiful wife, and with his intellectual gifts could look to a great future His tragic fate, conditioned by the period in history, was not uncharacteristic for many of my contemporaries. After Hitler's advent, he lost his job and emigrated to Paris. His wife had left him by that time, and his whole way of life had made him unable to adjust to the drastically changed circumstances. At the outbreak of World War II, he moved to England, served for a while in the army and finally found a haven at the house of an English book dealer in the country. By that time, however, his will to continue was broken and he committed suicide. The question when telling of one's own life is what to include and what to exclude. Why did I dwell on the fate of Yuthro, who, after all, played only a minor role in my life? It is, I believe, because it throws a light on the historic trauma which distinguishes a certain period through which I and many of the people I knew lived. The period I am referring to was only a few years ahead when I lived in Berlin. In hindsight, the signals of the approaching catastrophe were only too visible, but at the time they had moved in the background against the splendour of the cultural highlights of the Weimar Republic which concentrated in its capital city as never before or after the berlin theater of the 1920s whose protagonists were the directors reinhardt jessner and piscator has now become legendary for my friends and myself it became the sinusure of our lives on the surface berlin was a glamorous city the glamour was much in evidence at the place where i worked paul grauper at that time had begun to concentrate on conducting auction sales of books as well as works of art. I began to learn the trade by preparing the catalogue of the Leuchtenberg sale, a splendid collection of books formed by Napoleon's stepson and preserved until then in his wife's German family. The auctions themselves were society events where I got acquainted with the Berlin elite. I remember only a few of these people one of whom was, quote, Dr. Richard Strauss, the composer, who collected English colour prints of the 18th century. What this shows us is that I began my career at the wrong end. Dealing in rare books can, for some gifted individuals, become a glamorous profession, although only rarely as much as that of a dealer in great art. But for the majority of the profession, it is a moderate Though often fascinating, undertaking. In how moderate a way an antiquarian bookseller operates was made evident to me by my second job in the field. After a year and a half in Berlin, I was curious to see some other parts of Europe, and it was decided that I should spend half a year in Paris and the other half in London, in order to perfect my foreign languages. For a foreigner, it was impossible to obtain permission for employment in these countries. After searching for a while for a bookshop that would take me on without payment, I was referred to Monsieur Frédéric Monnier, who operated a small shop in the Rue de Clichy. Monsieur Monnier took me on immediately without having the slightest use for my services. He was a tall, very good-looking, meriodinal in his late forties or early fifties who dealt mostly in modern first editions and illustrated books, with erotica as a speciality. Like many Paris booksellers, Monsieur Meunier was a rich man, which did not show in his very modest shop, which had neither a telephone nor a typewriter. There was not even a watch on the premises, so Monsieur Meunier went outside his shop from time to time to consult the clock in front of a neighbouring clockmaker's shop, often exclaiming, Ah, ce n'est pas encore midi. What a contrast to my previous employers, for whom the workday was always too short. I complemented my professional education in Paris by frequent visits to the Hôtel Drouot, the famous locale where all the auction sales take place, from second-hand furniture to the greatest works of art. Here I attended one of the greatest book sales of the century, the Rahier sales a collection of rare and very rare books in sumptuous bindings, of which I wrote a report which was printed in my home-town paper, The at Zeitung. The second part of this year, 1930, I spent in London to make myself perfect in the language and to get an overview of the British rare book market. I lived in a boarding house on Gloucester Terrace in central London, where I shared a huge room with a fireplace with my friend, Bernhard Benjamin, with whom I had gone to school. In London I got acquainted with some of the giants of my profession who today have reached legendary status, such as E. P. Goldschmidt, Ernst Weil, and the formidable Maurice Ettinghausen. I had been warned before leaving for London that I would not be well received by Ettinghausen, whose hatred of Germans was notorious. An Englishman of German-Jewish descent, he was in Germany when World War I broke out and was interned there during the war years. I was told that from that time he did not wish to see any more Germans. To my surprise, he went out of his way to be friendly to me, and was of great help when three years later I started my own business in Paris, where he had moved as the representative of the renowned firm of Magsbross. He was certainly one of the most colourful people I have met in my trade. He was a friend of the last King of Portugal, whose collection of early Portuguese books he had formed, and was instrumental in the purchase of the Codex Sinaiticus from the Russian government and its acquisition by the British nation. An Orthodox Jew, he divorced his lovely wife of many years and married his Christian secretary, a charmless middle-aged woman. His younger son, Ernest, became one of our good friends. His older son was the first director of the Israeli Foreign Office and was later Israel's ambassador in Paris. Since I had left school, I had lived largely at my parents' expense. It was now time for me to become independent. Early in 1931, I got a job with the antiquarian bookseller firm J. Haller in Munich. Where I stayed for the next two years. I loved Munich. It is a beautiful town and was at that time the capital of the antiquarian book trade in Germany. There were about half a dozen booksellers of world renown, each with a large stock of valuable books. By the time I entered the firm of Halle, its founder had died and the business was being conducted by his widow, assisted by one of the most renowned German bibliographers. Ernst Schulter Strathaus. This was most fortunate for Mrs. Haller, whose knowledge of rare books unfortunately did not equal her commercial drive, which often resulted in rather hilarious situations. Schulter Strathaus was a strict taskmaster, but an excellent teacher. He is probably the person from whom I learned most, especially the basics of how to work efficiently. Unfortunately, he was also an early adherent of Adolf Hitler, and in fact, later became a prominent party official. It did not seem to bother him at the time that he owed his very good living to a Jewish firm. Anti Semitism, he declared, is a children's disease of National Socialism. I was happy at Munich, and even more so after I was joined by Anne, who continued her law studies at the University after having attended the University of Heidelberg. Although we both grew up in Frankfurt, I had known Anne only since I came back from Berlin at the beginning of 1930. I was introduced to her by my brother Eric, who had known her for some time, and whose stories about her made me curious to meet her. I fell in love with her right away. Her motto was »Wer glücklich ist verdienst zu sein« »The one who is happy« deserves it. She was and is the most cheerful person I ever met, and her cheerful outlook on life has sustained me now for more than 50, not always easy, years. I stayed altogether two years in Munich. During that time, the international depression had made deep dents into the financial situation of the European middle class. The important metal firm for whom my father worked was beginning to liquidate. The business of Anne's father came to an end, and he and his wife made a living by managing a cigar store. The depression made itself felt in Mrs. Haller's business, where my position was reduced to a part time job. On 31st of January 1933, I passed by a news poster on the Ludwigstrasse in Munich. The wording was short probably the most portentous of the century. It's said that the President of the German Reich had appointed Adolf Hitler, the leader of the strongest party in the German Parliament, as Chancellor. The triumph of evil, long dreaded, but never really believed, had arrived. I decided to go home to Frankfurt and await further developments. I spent the rest of the year at my parents' house doing some business on my own, But much of this time was spent in making plans for the future. The measures that Nazis took against the Jews were applied progressively. This led many Jews to delude themselves by wishfully thinking that they could accommodate themselves to the changed conditions. Since the alternative was leaving their homeland to start a new life in a foreign country, a difficult decision to make, their hesitation was understandable. Nobody was able to foresee the horrible ending of the story that had just begun. It was the decision of my mother that the time had come for us to leave the country which saved us. Her reasoning was that while there might still be time to leave later, the time to be admitted by other countries would be limited. This was a prophetic view. By the end of 1933, the dispersion of our family began, One year later, my parents had found a new home in Amsterdam, and with them my youngest brother and my only sister, who both settled later in Palestine. My brother Eric had left for America, and I started to build myself a new existence in Paris. With money provided by my father, I was able to buy a section of Mrs Haller's stock. These were all books in the exact and occult sciences together with some medicine, which determined the direction of my business up to this day. My office was a hole in the wall on the ground floor of an apartment building near the Madeleine. It consisted of two bookshelves, with a small desk in between, and very little space to move around. Anne had already moved to France several months earlier, after she had found a job in an orphan asylum near Paris. By the time I arrived, she was living with a French family where she took care of the two children. In August 1934, we were married by the mayor of the current 8th arrondissement in Paris, followed by a religious ceremony at my parents' house in Amsterdam a few days later. We rented a modest apartment in a modern building in Vincennes, a suburb of Paris whose population mostly consisted of people with small incomes. Its greatest attraction was its situation near the famous woods, the Bois de Vincennes, and its proximity to the centre of Paris, which could be reached in a 20-minute subway ride. We were very poor in the first years of our marriage, but we were happy. I have always been grateful for the fact that I was poor when I was young, instead of being poor in old age, after having witnessed the contrary in the generation which preceded us. It also helped that all our friends were in the same situation at that time. One day, an Englishman of about my age appeared at my office and asked if I had any early books on alchemy. This was one of my specialities at that time. I eagerly took one book after another from the shelves. The customer looked at them shortly and piled them up on my desk. When I had shown him everything I had, he asked, Any more? and then said, please send them to me as well. He gave me his card, which showed me that his name was Denis Duveen, and that he lived in one of the elegant new apartment houses near the Invalides. It turned out that he was a chemist from a rich English family, who was doing some work at the Sorbonne at that time. While he was sick, someone had given him John Reed's book, Prelude to Chemistry, to read which contains many attractive illustrations from early books on alchemy. These pictures had appealed to him, and he asked Morris Ettinghausen, the only English bookseller in Paris he knew, whether these books were still available for purchase. Ettinghausen sent them to me, and thus he became my first substantial customer. It was also the first time that I had the opportunity to build up an important collection from its beginnings. Dennis was extremely generous to me. He never bargained, and also let me work on the catalogue of his collection. This meant, of course, an enormous change in our financial situation as it relieved us from our constant worrying about money. Claude was born in 1936, and the next years would have been entirely happy for us if the events in Germany had not become more and more threatening. Anne's parents still lived in Germany during those years, and her father had spent some time in a concentration camp. They finally managed to emigrate to America, but they were both sick and died before we got there. In the early fall of 1938, it looked as if the war with Germany was imminent. Then came Munich and Chamberlain's prophecy of peace in our time. Although we should have known better, we felt relieved and decided to have a second child. Early in 1939, we moved to a larger apartment in a nice neighbourhood in Saint-Mondé with a view overlooking the zoo. The few months before the summer of 1939 were the high point of our life in France. It ended in an extended vacation during the month of August, which we spent on the seaside at the tiny village of yars in the Vendée, The house we lived in belonged to an old woman who lived from catching fish in the sea and selling them, and who, during the summer, rented out her house while she lived in her barn. It was a beautiful summer, but there was a general feeling that the good time could not last. One evening, while we walked home from the beach, I watched a young couple walking in front of us and overheard the man saying to his companion, Encore une journée qui compte Another day that counts. The Thunderbolt came on 23rd of August when it became known that the Germans had just concluded a treaty with the Russians after having delayed a treaty with the Allies for several weeks. From that moment on, war with Germany was a certainty. By this time, more people were convinced of its inevitability and the general sentiment was, let's get it over with. Since Paris was expected to be the first target of the enemy, we decided to stay at the seaside for the time being. I immediately decided to volunteer for the French army. My reasoning was that if ever a war was fought in which I had a personal stake, it was this one. Consequently, on the first Sunday in September, the day the war was officially declared, I took the train to the nearest city, La Roche-sur-Yonne, where the recruiting office was situated. When I arrived there, however, there was a sign saying that the office was closed on Sunday. In retrospect, this was symptomatic of the way the French conducted the war. I had planned to return to Jarre on the same evening, but since I had to present myself at the recruiting office again the next morning, I stayed overnight at a local hotel. But when the time came the next day, my services were declined. We have not yet decided what to do with people born in Germany. You will be notified. It turned out that my sojourn at the hotel in La roche sur was my undoing. In filling in the guest card, I had faithfully given Germany as my native country. A few days after my return to Gare, the gendarmes came to my house and took me away to a camp for enemy aliens in nearby sorbes Dolon the camp was an improvised facility located in a sardine factory of the firm Amieux, whose motto, Toujours Amieux, always to the better, was widely advertised on the premises. During the day, we were occupied with doing work in the fields, mostly arranging large blocks of timber. I remember that at one point, I was carrying on my shoulder a large tree trunk, whose other end rested on the shoulder of a German aristocrat. It so happened that a week after I entered the camp was Yom Kippur. I was one of about half a dozen inmates who had asked to be dispensed from work on that day, for which we obtained permission. On the same day, a commission visited the camp, which was to sort out Czechoslovakian citizens who wished to be released for military service. When this became known to our little group of celebrants of Yom Kippur, one of us had the bright idea, why don't we ask the commission if aliens with French wives or children could not also be released from the camp? We presented ourselves before the commission immediately. The captain asked for proof of relationship, and when I showed him my identity card in which the French citizenship of my son was noted, declared that I was free to leave the camp the next morning. This happened in the late afternoon at around the time our co-internees returned from work. We ran out to meet them and to give them the good news. The ones to whom the decision applied rushed to the office where they were told that it was now six o'clock, that the commission had finished its work for the day and that they should come back the next day. Alas, the commission never came back and our co-sufferers were to spend the months until the armistice in the camp. What I like to call the miracle of Yom Kippur apparently only profited those who respected the Day of Atonement. Shortly after I was reunited with my family, we were informed that we could no longer stay at the seaside. It had been reported that I was standing on the waterfront every night with my flashlight giving signals to German boats we were to proceed to the nearest larger town, which happened to be Nier. Here we found rooms just outside the city, in the house of a French family, the Porcheron, which consisted of mother, father, son, daughter and grandmother. We had the use of their garden and were quite happy there, except for the uncertainty of the future. I even used my involuntary freedom to make regular visits to the Nyon-la public Library where I wrote an article on the French pamphleteer Paul-Louis Courier, which was published in an Italian bibliophile journal. I also continued my business in a very limited way. It was here, in Nile, that Florence was born, in February 1940. The doctor who delivered her was dressed in the uniform of the French army. During all that time, neither one of the belligerent armies had made any decisive move, It was the period which the French call Drôle de Guerre, or the Strange War. This period suddenly ended in May 1940, when the Germans invaded Holland and Belgium. Totally unprepared, the French became panicky. All enemy aliens, this time without exception, were ordered to present themselves at the nearest camp, hastily installed for that purpose. So I find myself travelling north to the camp I was assigned to, Camp Rouchard near Azay le Rideau on the Loire River. During the approximately four weeks I spent at Rouchard, I met some old friends and made the acquaintance of some interesting people. Among the inmates were some members of the intellectual elite of German refugees who hitherto had escaped internment. Now, however, they were indiscriminately taken in, notwithstanding the fact that they were Hitler's staunchest adversaries such as, to cite only one example, the German political author Konrad Haydn, who had written the most devastating biography of the great Adolf. The complete unawareness of the French was most vividly demonstrated at the time by the abrupt termination of our sojourn at Rouchard. In June, after the Germans had invaded France and an armistice had been concluded, The commander of the camp assembled us in the courtyard and made a little speech, telling us that in view of the circumstances he had to let us go and that he had only one request, namely that as an old army officer who had served his country for many years, he wished we would show our respect for him by not giving our joy too open an expression. To this the audience replied by unanimously shouting «Vive la France!» which left the poor man in utter consternation. At no point had he realised that his prisoners were in much greater danger of being captured by the Germans than he or his colleagues. We were free now, that is, free to run as fast as we could, without a given destination. That was part one, of Emil Offenbach's memoir. Part 2, Our Escape from the Nazis, will be in our next Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal.